disconnect in the language we use. But to the whole idea of climate change is climate change about long term, at least decades. Things are getting warmer, is certainly true. Are things getting colder? Not necessarily. Welcome to episode 2, season 5 of the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are affecting real lives. Today I'm joined by Quincy Stiles, a second year foreign affairs major, and Walter Sharon, a second year's perspective politics major. How you guys doing? Very well, how are you? I can't complain. So Walter, I understand that you've been examining how one man from rural Bangladesh had to uproot his life and move to Dhaka, the capital. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about him? Sure. Let me introduce you to uh, a man named Golem. He lives currently in Dhaka, uh, the capital city of Bangladesh, and he wakes up every day in the in the shed where he lives with 15 other men. Uh, every day he gets up seven days a week and works at a, a brick factory uh, for 15 hours a day. So every day he works as a bricklayer, and it's really a struggle for him. He doesn't get to see his family. He doesn't eat very well, and he's certainly not happy. But one thing to note, is obviously the question why why is he living like this why why has this happened to him and as it's noted golem has no idea what global warming is what climate change is it's not a concept to him but he does know one thing he does know that if the river didn't take his land he wouldn't have to be there so i take it the reason he is there is because of climate change that's correct yes this river uh based on evidence of climate change in the area which is largely based on an increased monsoon season greater rainfall lines up with other climate models around the world, just proves that the river overflowed at a rate that was unprecedented and forced many people out of their farming communities to find work in other places. Can you give me a bigger picture of what's happening in Bangladesh, how the country as a whole has been affected by climate change? Sure. So let's start with Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh where Golem now lives. Already up to 400,000 low-income migrants arrive in Dhaka every year. 70% of these slum dwellers, they're fleeing some sort of environmental shock. A big reason for this is because of rising seas spilling over into rivers, making the water undrinkable. I think rising sea levels are uh, indicative of uh, climate change just taking a toll on people already. It's more than just global warming. It's rising sea levels pushing people from their homes. It's severe storms wreaking havoc upon people's homes and making them move from where they're accustomed to living. The issue of rising sea levels isn't just isolated in South Asia and Bangladesh. It's also happening in Latin America. It's happening all over the world. Cities like Miami could be one-fifth underwater by 2045. And that has big implications for everybody living in cities on coasts and just in densely populated regions. In fact, a 2018 report from the World Bank estimated that the impacts of climate change in three of the world's most densely populated regions, including Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, such as Bangladesh, and Latin America, could result in the displacement and internal migration of more than 140 million people before 2050. I think that any kind of exodus could lead to massive political and economic turmoil and really stall any kind of growth and development in a region such as that. Climate change. It's a threat that may define the contours of this century more than just about anything else. I mean, because really just in the Bangladesh story, we talked about the rising sea levels, which spilled in from the ocean into the river, and that made him uproot and leave because the drinking water was unsanitary. 
And that's going to be just infrastructural problems like that are going to happen all over the world, especially in less developed regions. So one thing that is particularly troubling to me, and I assume many people who are familiar with climate change, is this disconnect in the language we use to talk about it. So we have climate change, which has become kind of the accepted term and has replaced the outdated global warming. Obviously, with global warming, there's just the implication that the world is only going to get warmer, as with climate change. You know, it's a more comprehensive look at what's happening to our planet. Some places will get colder, some places will get warmer. Uh, but by the end of it, our climate is changing. And we just can't seem to shake the effects of the term global warming. For example, in one of President Trump's recent tweets, he asks, what the hell is going on with global warming? Please come back fast. We need you. Why can't we seem to shake misconceptions? And what does perpetuating the term global warming do to the overall psyche that we as a population have towards climate change? Well, I think the, the basis of that confusion boils down to the difference between climate and weather. So uh, if you really to understand President Trump's logic, I think he's trying to say that, you know, sure, things are hot in the summer, but man, it's really cold in the winter. Well, okay, fair enough, that's true. But the whole idea of climate change is we're talking about long term. At least decades of research has gone into this to make a certain trend argument. So the idea that things are getting warmer is certainly true. Are things getting colder? Not necessarily. And then it's also the things that need to be addressed in terms of sea level rise. It's the biggest marker. Um, and there are also other uh, more extreme weather events that are also signs that this is a larger phenomenon that is far bigger than just weather patterns. I think wrapping the whole phenomenon into a term like global warming really misses the implications of increased CO2 emissions. The fact that the climate is changing is the bigger takeaway and which will inevitably lead to national crises and climate-induced migration. Well, to my mind, climate change is an idea, and it's an idea that refers to human influence over planetary systems generally, but especially focusing on the atmosphere and uh, human-caused warming over a century or so. So that's Professor Willis Jenkins, uh, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia, with his area of study being particularly environmental ethics. So it's interesting that we, we bring in Professor Jenkins for this, because his area of study is not particularly climate refugees. The impulse is to look for an expert on the subject, but because it is a relatively new phenomenon, there's really only one study out there that talks about the connection between migration and climate, and I'm sure you can figure out the conclusion for yourself. Um, but we really wanted to take a step back, think about human rights and ethics, and how can we really think about the changing climate and how it impacts those who are forced out of their homes. You know, someone I really look to to answer that question is, um, is Mike Holm. Uh, he's a climate scientist who's written a great book called Why We Disagree About Climate Change. And, um, and his view is, um, I think, one that many people accept but are not sure what to do with the next step of it. And that is that the, the science in itself does not, is not self-explanatory uh, of what kind of responsibility must be taken, what policies, uh, specific policies are required to move forward. And that means you have to have cultural engagement with all the ideas that people use to interpret uh, humanity's relationship with the planet um, and all the ideas that people use to interpret uh, the science itself. Um, now, that's, I'm going to say two more things, two further things. One is that the IPCC itself has begun to include uh, ethical analyses in its reports. Um, I would say that the, the frame of those analyses remains fairly narrow, um, 
so it's it's not really wide ranging and doesn't um, doesn't engage visibly with a wide range of uh, cultural ideas and stories and narratives. But you know, it's a it's a start. Uh, in terms of in terms of economics, um, I, I would say first of all, you know, by my way of thinking, um, economics is a way to organize and standardize uh, ways forward once normative goals have already been set. They can help us decide among normative goals. They can help us decide among political paths. Um, but it doesn't in itself specify what must be done, at least not with the, the uh, addition of certain premises. Um, you know, the, the, and those premises may well be that the most rational, uh, the most rational way forward is to um, maximize value, but that's, that's one premise. You have to argue for it, I think. Another thing that's important to talk about is religion. Um, it's a, certainly a controversial topic, but one that um, is important based on the fact that so many people ascribe to different religions and their worldviews are made up of so many different things. Um, so if, it's, if climate change is really a global phenomenon, we have to understand how it impacts so many different kinds of people. You know, religion, in my view, has to be part of the, part of the conversation, part of understanding how different uh, human communities interact with their environments in the way that they do, and also thinking about the range of resources for interpreting, critiquing, reconstructing those relationships. Um, I think I would say I would go another step and say, in order to understand uh, the diversity of ways that people interpret environmental relations, you have to have some sense of uh, the stories that matter most to them, and very often those will be uh, religious stories and religious values. And so that's just so just to include, just to understand and include all of the stakeholders that matter for environmental problems. Uh, I think uh, a fluency with religious constituencies and their ideas has to be, again, part of the conversation. Um, and by now, I, I suppose you, you're exactly right to then raise the question. Uh, so are, is religion an obstacle or a help in this regard? And I think the only answer can be both. I mean, just it's, it wouldn't be much different than saying, is culture an obstacle or a help? Well, it's both and it's unavoidable. Um, now, obviously, as our information has shown, climate change is a major issue. Um, now, why have we not taken a lot of strides to change this? Why, why has reaction been slow? I know most countries have gotten more on board than others, particularly the U.S. being a bit of a rogue state. But it really begs the question, why, why is this response um, rather lethargic? On the one hand, um, you would expect conflict and maybe even some forms of apathy or implicit denial. And that is because the problem is just, it is so complicated. And it does call into question uh, vast inherited infrastructures, um, it, any kind of uh, minimally adequate response. Re requires overhauling um, expensive institutions, um, path-dependent forms of investment, <laughs> um, really difficult things. Um, and in conditions like that, um, there's a strong incentive to um, uh, create conflict that stalls things, uh, to look away at other problems that are maybe easier to solve or um, more interesting to work on. Um, and I think we see forms of that kind of denial, um, certainly even among populations that are supposedly, you know, engaged on this issue. Um, there's, a, there's a great ethnography of denial that focuses on um, that Norway by Kari Norgard, who points out that um, a very um, science literate population nonetheless can exhibit forms of denial when they're faced with the complexity of the problem. And then let's talk about human rights a little bit specifically. 
Um, obviously, we're talking about climate refugees, and this is a new a new phenomenon that is not often discussed. So it really it really begs the question. Um, once we talk about how our actions on the planet in return influence other humans, um, does that really change how we think about it? Does that stimulate more action? Does that change anything for the way we we think about it? The easy answer is yeah. Any way that you think about political justice is going to matter for climate policy. Absolutely. Um, and the slightly more particular answer would be um, uh, climate change, the idea of climate change must also include an understanding of the global political production of vulnerability, of human vulnerability. Um, and that will become an increasing part of what responsibility for climate change looks like. There's also an interesting idea that the human rights topic as we know it um, is not exactly adequate um, for this issue of climate change as it's uh, certainly functioning to address different kinds of issues. I think there's a fair amount of pressure on the concept of human rights, which has done so much work for political thought and global political organizing over the 20th century. Will that concept be able to interpret the injustices involved in climate change or the vulnerabilities involved in climate change? Will it be able to generate institutional responses to it? I don't know. There's an awful lot of pressure on the concept to do that, and it, and it may well be that the injustices and vulnerabilities involved in climate change require um, development of new political concepts. And then finally, I think it's also important to look at uh, the future. Um, one of the biggest claims of why we need to think about climate change and our influence on the planet at the moment is because what we do now influences those a long time from now. So when we, we talk about climate change in terms of refugees, and we're just not, not just talking about our, our own grandchildren, but we're talking about you know, five, ten years from now, even now, um, what we're doing is influencing other humans, not necessarily just the planet. You know, how does that change the conversation in terms of ethics? However else we think about our relationship to future generations, we have at least to them the obligation to pass on to them good ways of arguing, and good ways of understanding why we did what we did. Um, because if we don't do that, then we may not only have made their world worse, we may have also um, deprived them of the possibility to critique us for doing a bad job. <laughs> so um, that's not to say that that's the answer. It's just to say that we have, in addition to those other political and ecological responsibilities, we have a, a kind of cultural and moral responsibility to inculcate in each new generation uh, the ability to evaluate well the world that they are inheriting. And sometimes, and here I may speak personally, that's kind of a heartbreaking task because it means that I may have to um, inculcate in um, younger students, in my own uh, children, uh, an understanding that um, my generation um, has, n has not acted as well as it could, has not maybe even acted decently. Uh, and so um, there's every incentive to not do that, right? To, uh, there's every incentive, um, and this is especially true of climate progressive people or environmentally aware people especially, is to work hard for some particular action and then, um, even though it is an, an inadequate action, a, a necessarily inadequate action, and then to describe it as very responsible, right? Like, well, we have done a very responsible thing. We are exercising leadership and, I don't know, we're reducing our greenhouse gases by 10% from 1990 levels or whatever it is. Um, but it's still obviously inadequate to the problem. Uh, and so I think we are required to pass on the capacity to interpret what is realistically inherited. So keeping in mind what Professor Jenkins had to say about 
you know, our duties towards our next generation and subsequent generations. What can national governments do to anticipate these questions and instead of having a more reactive approach, kind of a proactive approach? I think in order to be proactive, uh, governments really need to look at their existing infrastructure to maybe prepare for future crises, such as we saw in Puerto Rico. They did not have the right infrastructure to handle a massive hurricane in the middle of hurricane season, only going to get worse. So I think preparations for future crises, as well as looking at our borders, uh, making sure that when there are these crises that we have policies in place to recognize the fact that these are people fleeing, not because it's just their choice, but because they pretty much have to. And I think that's something that national governments can look at now in order to more proactively face the challenges of the future. So I think it's interesting that we just talked about um, defense in terms of how security works in relation to climate change, and it's certainly a question that needs to be answered. There's no one defined answer to such a large question. So I'm not going to try to answer that question, but I, I will note that it actually does get even more complicated. Let's take a look at Bangladesh again. Um, a lot of people have thought about Bangladesh in recent months and years based on the Rohingya crisis. For those of you not so familiar, it was uh, basically the phenomenon in which over one million Rohingya refugees were forced to flee Myanmar because of their Muslim beliefs. Uh, Myanmar is a predominantly Buddhist-majority country. So they fled into um, Bangladesh. And as we mentioned, Bangladesh is one of the most populous countries in the world. And uh, it's a small country. It's, it can't really handle this influx of people. So think about it in this way. You have all these people coming in, over one million, just based on one political crisis. And then think about those who have to leave Bangladesh based on the climate crisis. So then it asks the question, where can people actually go? There are only so many places that are open to refugees, and it really complicates everything because no one seems to be prepared for such, such mass movements of people. So essentially what you're saying is we have these pre-existing crises, and then on top of that, climate change is adding another dimension and exacerbating what's already going on. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's nothing more. It's just complicating already confusing conditions, and if states are struggling to deal with migration at the moment, based on political factors, how are they going to deal with migration based on political and climate-related factors as they can only multiply into a greater problem? In terms of solutions, one thing I hear a lot about is this overpopulation crisis. And I saw a rather interesting article the other day on, I believe it was Vox, but I don't hold me to it. And it was essentially making the argument that the places that are driving you know, the population at this point are in particularly poor areas, like you mentioned before, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. And we often point to overpopulation as one of the main causes of climate change. But when you look at these populations, uh, their contribution to overall climate change is minuscule in comparison to what you know the United States is doing, what China is doing, places that aren't really contributing to the uh, overpopulation. And I think it's just Another example of trying to redirect blame uh, in kind of an unfair way. Yeah, I think being that the United States is the biggest consumer of meat, we fly the most, we use the most fossil fuels with our cars, with our trains, with everything. It is really unfair uh, that different areas of the world are disproportionately affected. We've already pointed out Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, uh, obviously South Asia. I think when you talk about overpopulation, I think of Niger and Sub-Saharan Africa and how it is one of the fastest growing populations in the world. 
and that that area is only going to get more hot, more dry, more unsustainable for plants, for people even. And we just need to have more real global cooperation on these world issues. It's funny that you mentioned global cooperation because it seems that climate change is affecting that as well. Uh, you see these water crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and you have these countries that are starting to kind of hoard water. And it is much like the refugee crisis that we've seen is exacerbating these issues and driving a really big wedge in international politics and foreign relations. Certainly talking about conflict, it's it would be naive to think that conflict is not a result of all of this. And certainly on a, an internal scale, a lot of civil war and things like that, have, there, you know, there are a multitude of examples of these types of things happening. Um, but there's also a widening disparity between rich and poor. And on a global scale, it's kind of a, a really apparent stretch between those who can afford to protect against climate change and those who really can't. Uh, for example, I think about the Netherlands, right? Um, they are low-lying and um, they, they do have a risk at flooding. And I think they've recently built some multi-billion dollar dams to protect against flooding that would do a lot of damage to their cities. And then you think about Bangladesh, right? They, they have equally of a problem, if not more, based on these climate patterns. Um, they, could, they could really use some of this infrastructure, or they certainly cannot afford to do anything nearly as, as large. And it just is a, it's a glaring um, difference. Also, in terms of media coverage, I think you could talk about that too. Think about, um, you know, major flooding has been happening in uh, South Asia for, for years. And, you know, we really don't think about it that often. We hear about it and then forget about it. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is uh, Houston. You know, it was a major... Uh, tragedy based on the um, flooding that came with a hurricane um, recently. It was all all over the media, and it was certainly something that was on a lot of a lot of people's minds um, for a long time, and not without reason. But it is also interesting to note that Houston will undoubtedly be able to um, defend against a similar thing in the future, whereas these countries we're mentioning, um, like India and Bangladesh there's very little evidence that um, they're able to adapt to a changing climate. This reminds me of one of our takeaways from last week's episode where we had Dr. Reese Holter on, and he said something to the effect of, you know, all challenges, in particular climate change, present an opportunity to change and to grow. And it seems like what we have here is we have climate change, and we have the opportunity for countries to come and band together and try and resolve some of the inequality that exists in this world and share best practices and really help each other out as a human race. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is uh, quite the opposite. Um, and it seems to be kind of a tragedy that we are letting this opportunity kind of fly by. I mean, I think the Paris Accord was a huge step forward. Some like 150 countries coming together to make their policies equal um, amongst each other and to kind of split the bill when it comes to climate. I mean, yeah, the Paris Accords were well and good, but it's a non-binding resolution that the United States has already dropped out of and has left the whole international community in shambles. Yes, it was a great step forward, but it seems like our, our world leaders are really dropping the ball on possible solutions and what we can do moving forward. So I guess the question is, you know, what can we do personally? The desire of so many individuals, but also collectives, movements, cities, communities, to respond to climate change generally, but also um, dwindling environmental relations more broadly, 
um, I take to be a great cause of, of hope. Um, even if there's not like a one-to-one sense that, that, that this is going to lead to some massive political change, um, you know, um, you take it, I take it as hope because it means that people understand their sense of uh, self in relationship to the living planet around them. And um, most basically, I'd say that's probably what's most important, which can take a wide variety of forms. You know, I think that that is in part behind why people want to grow food in their backyard. They want to be connected to these elemental processes of life and death and nourishment and sustenance. And in some way, doing that connects us to the living earth, even if, uh, even if we, even if we um, aren't exactly sure how we can bring about change at a, a broader scale. Or um, folks who are reconnecting with their watershed in some way or rethinking about their, their political membership as a form of watershed membership. You know, all of these are... Um, these are ways of uh, rethinking who we are um, in mind, body, and soul uh, in relationship to the living world around us. Uh, and that is probably, at bottom, what's most important. And that's all we have for this week. If you like this episode, be sure to drop a like or comment on SoundCloud. Additionally, we just got added to Spotify, so be sure to check us out there. We have all of our past seasons and episodes up. Stay up to date with the Global Enquirer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And be sure to tune in next week where I sit down with researchers Tyler Hinkle and Emma Ross to discuss the future of our cities. See you next week.